Hey everyone, we've got an exciting new episode today. And first, a quick word about one of our sponsors. Jason Hennessy uses SEO to generate millions of dollars in results for law firms across the country. In his new book, Law Firm SEO, Jason takes you behind the scenes to see what actually works to rank on Google. Pick up a copy today of Law Firm SEO on Amazon or download it on Audible for just $25. You can do so freaking much with a law degree. Think outside the box. Find what interests you, what you're passionate about, what brings you joy. Find that industry, find that, and then figure out how you can bring your legal skills to that. If you're going to practice law, do it in a way that's meaningful and fulfilling to you. And that can be really anything you want it to be, not necessarily what society tells you it should be. Welcome to Lawful Good, a show about lawyers and the trials they face inside and outside the courtroom. I'm your host, Luke W. Russell. I'm not a journalist. I'm not an attorney. I'm trained as a coach. I love human connection, and that's what you're about to hear. My guest today is Bunmi Emananjo, a first-generation Nigerian immigrant who went from waiting tables at Olive Garden to working as legal counsel with the Biden administration. For nearly two decades, Bunmi has moved between the legal and biotechnology worlds, including policies surrounding fields like synthetic biotech and nanotechnology. Boonwee's prized achievement is the creation of Atlas Book Club, a program dedicated to providing children the opportunity to experience other nations and cultures through authentic narratives. Boonwee's interview will take place over two episodes. This first episode will focus on her life and experiences, and the next will focus on the Atlas Book Club and the new worlds she's opening for children. Boonmi, let's start by talking about your family's history of migration to and from the United States. My parents moved here in the 70s. Uh, my dad, I think, uh, won some sort of scholarship. Um, and so he lived in uh, Russia for a little bit. And then he moved here to the United States and subsequently sent for my mom. I guess they had started dating while they were in Nigeria. Both moved here to go to college. My dad went to Howard University. Uh, My mom went to Bowie State. And they were here for um, a few years. I think they got married, had my older brother in 74, and then had me later in 78. But at the time when they had me, my mom's, I remember she tells the story often, her student visa had expired. And they, you know, of course, they're like, hey, your student visa has expired. What's the deal? And she she was like, well, I am nine months pregnant. So, <laughs> you know, what do you want me to do? And so she ended up, you know, having me here. And I moved back with, you know, the rest of my family when I was two months old. And uh, my family moved back to Nigeria. When you think back, did your parents ever talk about their their time here in the United States before migrating back? Yeah, they did. Um, 
as long as I can remember, my parents had always said, well, when you graduate high school, you're going back to the U.S. for your college education. You know, it just made sense. So I think that part of our family history, uh, our young family, uh, was just something that they had always talked about. And I remember hearing stories of my dad um, going to Howard University and, you know, just the pride that came with being, you know, an African man at Howard University. I, I remember him speaking very proudly of that. And, you know, just my mom's experiences here in the U.S. My mom um, cleaned houses actually as a student. She paid her way through college and by cleaning houses and I think also uh, probably doing some bookkeeping job because she was an accountant. She's retired now. Yeah, so we heard a lot about those humble beginnings and I think we recognized very early on how very fortunate we were to have that American citizenship. It was something that we just knew was something special, for lack of a better term. It was a fantastic childhood, but, you know, my parents struggled. My mom had a, you know, a nine to five job and then she had a side gig. And, you know, my parents definitely struggled, but you wouldn't know it. I, I don't remember the struggle. You know what I mean? Take us back to your neighborhood. So we lived in a number of neighborhoods and, you know, we moved around a little bit, but the neighborhood where I think I spent the years that I remember very clearly is where we lived from when I was 10 to when I was 16, when we moved. And it was just a very community-based neighborhood. Nigeria is based on three main tribes, Yoruba, Igbo, and Hausa. And, you know, I'm from the Yoruba tribe. My husband's Igbo. But I remember there's a, there was a Hausa man in front of our house with his little stall and he sold, like, different kinds of candy. And we would, you know, always buy candy from him. And there was a clinic right next door. There was a lady across the street from our house. Back then, we didn't have a blender, you know? And so you would go across the, this. This woman who had this business in her home and she has this giant industrial blender. So you would take your tomatoes and your bell peppers and your onions and you would walk across the street and pay her some money. And so she blends your stuff and then you carry the bowl back to your house and then you make dinner. And so that was just, again, there was a lady down the street who sold bread. My childhood is very much waking up every morning to the smell of bacon bread every morning. <laughs> and so it was just, that was just kind of the neighborhood is, was where when you woke up, you smelled in the neighborhood and you heard the familiar sounds that make up your childhood. Yeah. Growing up, you had a tall bookshelf in your living room. Which books would stand out to you when you, you look at that huge bookshelf? It's hard to say which will stand out because we read books from different genres. Um, I, I've spoken about this before that, you know, my dad was very strict and but he was also very much an academic and he just set such high standards. And so uh, during the time of holidays, for lack of a better term, when school was out of session, when he was leaving the house, hey, you get this book and you read and you had assignments. And at the end of the holiday session, you had to 
to write a book report. And so the kinds of books that were in my dad's library were the autobiography of Muhammad Ali and, yeah. you know, Shakespeare, Much Ado About Nothing, um, and a lot of Charles Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> and But also, we were very fortunate that he also had books where we saw ourselves and our cultures re- reflected, like books by Wale Shoinka, Chinua Achebe, you know, the great giant literary giants, you know, of, of Nigeria and other African countries. And then, of course, I had my uh, famous five, which is, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with that. That's by Annie Blayton. Uh, and it's uh, a series very similar to like the Nancy Drew kind of series. And of course, I had that. And then I also had Daniel Steele. which at like 14 (laughs) I was sneaking and reading (laughs) and Mills and Boonsy like all the romance novels and I remember my aunt my mom's younger sister who's like my second mom she lives in England and she sent me some books and she sent Daniel Steele and I was like halfway through reading it when my mom discovered and she kind of flipped out on me and her sister. Um, So yeah, so there were, there were just a wide variety of books. And if I were to pick ones that really stood out to me was a book like Arabian Tales. Uh, I think it's like Ali Baba and the seven seas, those types of stories, because they were all very magical and they were based on like that South um, South Asian mythology and uh, folk tales. And so those really stood out to me because they were just transported you to this like magical fantasy world. Did you read all of the books? I don't know if I read every single one because my dad had some very academic books in there, but I read quite a bit. And the other part was in, in addition to what we had in the house, my older brother was the cool kid in the neighborhood and then in school. And so he would have his friends who were, I guess, more well to do and traveled a lot to the U.S. stuff. And so they would bring back all these comic books and, you know, like the Spider-Man Marvel comics and, you know, and Adventures of Tintin and things like that, those graphic novels. And so in addition to what we had in the house, he had like access to all those. And, you know, so I was able to just like kind of pick it back. Yeah. On his, you know, popularity and just have access to some of those cool graphic novels and comics as well. Yeah. So here you are, you're growing up in Nigeria and your your head is buried in books. How much of the time was your head in Nigeria? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it was a lot, actually. While I read a lot, I was also I was very much a tomboy because I had to and a lot of my cousins that were my, my age were, you know, well, older. And so I spent a lot of time like playing soccer in our little neighborhood we had like a yard oh and hanging one of my closest friends her name is Vera (laughs) and she um spending a lot of time with her and we would listen to Snoop Dogg (laughs) and other American artists and so we spent a lot of time outside of school you had the little cassette player and you had your music notebook and you would play it and stop it and write down the lyrics (laughs) I love it 
So we did a lot of that kind of thing. And uh, the other part of my childhood that just is so dear to me is the time we spent with my grandparents. We spent a lot more time with my maternal gra- grandparents who from, were from Ijebode, my grandfather and grandmother. And we would go there and, oh, that I'm going to cry. <laughs> they were just love personified. They were just, ah, oh, they just, they spoke no English. You know, my grandfather was, uh, what I guess, a traditional doctor herbalist. You know, my, my grandmother had a, a stall in the market where she sold rice and beans and just grains. And we would go there. And, and my mom grew up, you know, helping her mom in the marketplace. That part of my childhood is just, I'm glad I remember. Yeah. Because it just holds so many memories. And my grandparents were Muslim. My mom is a very staunch Catholic. <laughs> my mom is very much Catholic. And I grew up Catholic. And, uh, but my parent, my grandparents are Muslim. And so we would go for like Eid celebrations and go to the mosque on Friday. And then on Sunday, we would go to mass and take communion. Like that's just was what my childhood was. So yeah, that's growing up in the village, spending time with my grandparents is a huge part of. of Yeah. You mentioned your grandmother, how do you carry her and your mother's lessons with you each day? Just my grandparents, but my grandmother and my grandfather was just so much love. Like that's when I think of them, all I can think about is unconditional love, you know, like my mom, you know, she converted to Catholicism and then she married my dad, who's from a different tribe, you know, so things that back then would have been a big deal and would have mattered to some people, just didn't matter to them. They didn't care, you know, that she was converting or they, they didn't care that she was marrying someone from a different tribe. Like, they didn't, you know, they were just, they just loved so unconditionally. And so when I think about, you know, my grandparents, my grandmother, that that's just what I feel and the feeling of how much they loved us still feels very tangible 12 years later, you know? And so my mom, you know, you said, how do I carry my mom with me? My mom is awesome. (laughs) She's just really, she's everything. And she, there are certain things that she's taught me that's really stuck and that I apply in everyday life, you know, and it helps guide me. She's just, just filled with so much wisdom and she just does it in a way that's non-judgmental and just in a way that's easy. Mm. When you look back and, and think about where you are and what you've done with your life, with your family and with your career, what do you think your grandparents would be proud of? Oh, wow. They would be probably most proud of our kids. You know, they would love on them so hard. Thinking about the books, can a book be as good as a trip to a physical location? Well, no. (laughs) But it can come pretty damn close. (laughs) 
It depends on a lot of things, right? So it depends on the author. It depends on your own lived experiences, you the reader. It depends on how much you as a reader open yourself to the book and allow yourself to get lost and dream, you know, and just let your imagination go. But I recently read The Things She's Seen. That was my favorite book that I read last. It's called The Things She's Seen. And it's a young adult novel set in Australia. The authors are Aboriginal Australian brother-sister duo. I knew nothing prior to reading that book and prior to exploring the Aboriginal uh, culture of Australia for Atlas Book Club. I didn't know much. And so that's an example of how a book can really take you there. Yeah. In elementary, I believe you started knitting, making things like headbands, and then these would be sold at the <laughs> same store where your mother sold her cosmetics. Yeah. It, it occurred to me recently, and by recent, I mean in the last two years, that this entrepreneurial spirit is such a part of who I am. And I just, it took me a while to recognize it because my grandmother was a market woman. She was a businesswoman. My mom was until she graduated from college. And even while she was working as an accountant, she had this side gig where she would pick us up from school and she would make rounds to these different supermarkets and drop off her goods. And my great-grandmother was in market woman. So, and then of course, in my childhood, I had this little business where I would buy yarn <laughs> or get my mom to buy yarn, if we're being honest, and sell these little hair ribbons at the supermarket. And I was maybe 10 then. And then I also had this business where I don't even know where I came up with that idea. I would make coconut candy. So basically I shredded coconut and cook it down in like sugar and water. It's basically like coconut in like caramel and wrap it up in little bags and give it to the guy selling candy in front of our house to sell for me. But it was almost like when I left Nigeria at 16, there was this shift to, okay, you're going to go to America and you're going to go to college and you're going to go to med school and you're going to get a job. And you know what I mean? And so I feel like that whole entrepreneurial spirit kind of was quiet for a while until maybe like three years. I think I turned 40 and, you know, something happened. We spoke with your mother and she said it meant a lot to her to have her kids working hard. What was your relationship like with her growing up and how has that kind of shifted as she's moved into a grandmother uh, stage? We always had a close relationship. Yeah, I think my mom is and has always been just a great example of unconditional love. You know, and she's just very, she's very open-minded. She's just a judgment-free zone. Also, I was a really good girl. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, can, it's not always a good thing as you get older, you know, but I'm very much a, a rule follower, still am, you know, which helps being an attorney. Just growing up, I just was very shy, very quiet, and just, I just wanted to read my books. <laughs> 
you know, so I, I don't, um, I didn't give them much trouble to begin with. That aside, you know, we just had such a close relationship and she made efforts to be interested in what I was interested in. And we would listen to Mariah Carey albums and watch Mariah Carey like videos on MTV or like <laughs> all day Saturday. And, <laughs> you know, she was just very accessible. And so has I've gotten older I think our relationship has definitely gotten stronger. As a mom, myself, and a wife, I appreciate some of the struggles and challenges she had. We had our uh, tense moments when, because when I moved from Nigeria here to the U.S., I was 16. And when she joined, I was 20. And so four years of not seeing her and not she's you know I was independent woman you know like (laughs) yeah so there was some tense moments as she adjusted to the fact that I was you know not her little girl anymore and I had to adjust to having a parental presence in my life again but that was for like a couple of years and then we were as close as we were before I left Nigeria if if not even closer yeah yeah so you mentioned earlier that the that your parents' plan was, you know, you're going to finish high school and you're going to go get a higher education in the United States. Were you like always bought into that plan or was that kind of more just something maybe you just kind of were swept in the current, didn't think about it? Or was there maybe at points some feeling like you were going along with someone else's plan? Oh, that's a good one. To understand Nigerian culture, as it was then, I know things may have changed. You just do what your parents tell you. And I wasn't given much of a choice, but I didn't really give much thought to having a choice. You know, it just, I don't think it ever occurred to me to be like, well, do I have a choice in the matter? Which is interesting. I had never thought of, I've never thought about that. It was just what, we were going to do. And that was it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you moved here. Did you come here with your brother? Mm -hmm. So you have one person was moving to the U S as a teenager, a source of both uh, maybe excitement and inspiration as well as anxiety. Yeah, it was. I I think So the journey from Nigeria to London, where we stayed for three months, was more a source of excitement because I was going with one of my best friends. She she uh, was one of those families that traveled often. And so they were they were going on vacation to London. Um, So we took the same flight. So there was this excitement that I'm going to England with one of my closest friends. And so there was that excitement there. Um, But then when it was time to live London and go to the U.S., which was definitely more unfamiliar land where I didn't know anyone, there was some anxiety. And I don't remember feeling excited. I I remember feeling sad and just anxious now that I think about it. That's the word I would use to describe it, about the uncertainty of it all. And I think once I got over the excitement of hanging out with my friend I think it started to settle in that oh my gosh I miss my mom my home my dad my brother you know so yeah yeah 
Now, if I remember right, you said earlier that you you know plan was come go to you know come back to the United States, go to med school, and that's what you needed to do to be successful. When did you leave that idea behind? I would say it was a gradual discontent with that plan. <laughs> and I think it started, you know, my second year. While I was in Nigeria, I love Janet Jackson. And I had always said, oh, when I go to America, I'm going to become a choreographer. <laughs> I love it. Janet Jackson. So when I got to the U.S., so first two semesters of college, I was on plan, on my parents' plan. And then I started to realize the opportunities that were here in the U.S. I started to understand that if you wanted to be a choreographer, you can actually do that if you chose. So the rebellion (laughs) started happening a little bit. And then I took two years of jazz dance. And oh my gosh, I was so happy well, until the teacher told me like I had that flat feet. So, oh. you know, but anyway, so I think that's when that started happening, you know, the kind of awakening for lack of a better term. And then, but by the time I got to my last year of college and I took the MCATs and I just did average, I didn't, you know. And I, it was clear to me that, this, you know, because average doesn't get you into med school. And I was just like, oh, why am I feeling so? I don't even really want to do this. Why am I getting myself up about having just average scores in the MCATs? And so, and I did try, you know, I tried, I was like, okay, I'm going to try. Let's apply. I didn't get in. And, you know, of course the, you know, I had a lot of friends in the same boat. You just try again. That's what you did. And I was like, why am I trying again for something I really don't want to do, you know? And so that's when it's like, okay, I'm not doing this. And I'm trying to remember how my parents felt. I, I don't remember any them feeling particularly terrible about the decision. They were just like, okay, which was again, you know, a, a reminder that, well, maybe I should have done this a long time ago and not have wasted so much time trying to appease them, make them happy. You know, but I think if you ask any immigrant teenager or first generation, you know, American, they'll tell you that there's some pressure to do things like that because you have this opportunity that not many people have. So there's that pressure like there's so many people who want to come to America, you know? And so I should do this because I have this opportunity. Well, but it's your life, right? You should do what you want to do with it. So that's, that's how I came about that decision. And then I, I worked for uh, a biotech company for about a year and a half and, you know, just talking to one of the attorneys, they were like, have you ever thought about going to law school? (laughs) (laughs) Really? But sure. Why not? (laughs) So, That's it. It was just somebody asks you about law school. And what was it in that moment that you that caught your attention from law? Yeah. And I had never thought about it. But the moment she asked, it was like light bulb. Of course, I love to read and I love to write, you know, and I, I I think what I'll say is one of my, what's the word, strengths is that I can 
decipher a huge amount of information in a short period of time, <laughs> you know, yeah. which makes, again, working doing this Atlas book club thing, right? because I have to read a lot of books and make a decision on which books we select. And so I was like, well, duh, of course, that's what I should do. And I took the LSATs and I scored ridiculously high and it just, at that point, it just all made sense. And I applied and got in and yeah. And when you graduated, what were you hoping to do with your law degree? So initially, it just made sense to do uh, patent law, you know, because I have a science background. My undergrad is in cell biology and genetics. And then marrying that with my legal degree just made sense. Oh, I'll do patent law. And I took the patent bar. But patent was very boring. (laughs) And to me, it was anyway what I knew of it. Yeah. And I just wasn't able to get a job that fell in into that, that area of the law. So that was the plan. But when I graduated and after complete, I did a clerkship after completing my clerkship, it was very evident that I didn't have the luxury of selecting which area of law I wanted to do. I just needed to get a job because I, I completed my, my clerkship in 20, uh, 2007 right around the recession. And so it was like, okay, I just need any job now. Yeah. Now you're talking about a, you have pre-med for undergraduate, you go, you score incredibly well on the LSAT. You think about patents. Do you ever stop and think like, you know, I am pretty smart. I get asked this question. Well, not a lot, but I've gotten asked this question a couple of times. And I think... I work hard. And I remember growing up, my my brother is the one that can say he's a genius. He is. And so I'm a little competitive. (laughs) And I remember growing up, he would just, while eating like his rice, that's when he studies and he just, "Ah," and he's done and he gets straight A's. I, on the other hand, would be up all night with my lantern just studying and studying and studying. And so I think what developed over a period of time was my work ethic. Mm. And I know what works for me. I know my study habits. I know what I have to do to get that grade. So if you say that adds all up to being smart now, I guess you could describe it as that. but it doesn't come easy. Well, maybe now it does. It comes easier. <laughs> yeah. I just, I work hard and I study a lot. And I, and now I think the way I study is I just have a yearning for knowledge and I, what I know, I want to know it. What advice would you give law students who are getting ready to graduate and uh, go out into the real world, would you maybe tell them to have some fun along the way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's so understated in the legal education that I got and that we probably all got is that you can do so freaking much with a law degree. And so just think outside the box and you can pretty much do anything you want with a law degree in the sense that find what 
interests you, what you're passionate about, what brings you joy, really find that industry, find that, and then figure out how you can bring your legal skills to that. And it may not necessarily be the practice of law. And, you know, what I quickly learned was that the law practice is not so sexy in the sense that has what you think it is or the way it's portrayed on TV and all that stuff. There's a lot of grind in there, you know? And so if you're going to practice law, do it in a way that's meaningful and fulfilling to you. And that can be really anything you want it to be, not necessarily what society tells you it should be. Yeah, I love that. So. You eventually go to work as counsel for the Food and Drug Administration. When did that come after your graduation period? Oh, that came years. I started working at the FDA in 2012. I graduated in 2005. And so between 2005 and 2012, that's seven years, I did a clerkship. I did a lot of contract attorney positions because I just couldn't find a job. It was so frustrating. And in between that time, I had three kids. So, you know, while now when I look back and I, I definitely was very frustrated, uh, but at the same time, I just had this opportunity to be home with my kids when they were young, you know? So I had the kids, you know, pretty much back to back, like, you know, with a year in between. Looking back now, I'm thankful for that opportunity to be home with them, you know, and I had contracting gigs where I would work for a while and then home for a while. And so part of the frustration too was, you know, okay, I live in the DC area where attorneys are a dime a dozen. (laughs) And I think in 2010, I just um, made the decision to go back to school and get a master's degree in bioscience affairs because I wanted to um, just kind of stand out from the pack for a better term. And so I knew I wanted to work at the FDA because I felt like my science background married with my legal education would be a good fit. So I got a degree that is basically FDA law. So, yeah, when I graduated from that Hopkins program, I got into the FDA. What were your responsibilities and challenges working at the FDA? I mean, working at the FDA was such a great experience. You know, I just had the opportunity to work on different areas of the law. I did regulatory policy um, and I did, you know, conflict of interest work. So it was just such a good experience and a great way to start my career. When we come back, Boonmi will tell us about the moment when she began to truly believe that a higher power was at work in her life and how learning to be authentic and vulnerable has made her a better person. Stay with us. I'm Luke W. Russell, and you're listening to Lawful Good. Hey, everyone. Luke here. If you're thinking hey, these interviews are unique and really highlight the humanity of the guests. That's because this is what we do all day, every day. I own an agency and we work with law firms who are 
marketing, and advertising for mass torts and personal injury claims. We drive results by using the power of human stories. Our unique and thoughtful methods for crafting messages allow us to help lawyers get clients by connecting with the hearts and minds of potential claimants. If you're looking to serve more individuals in need of legal help and you want to get away from generic marketing, shoot me an email at luke at russellmedia.us. That's L-U-K-E at R-U-S-S-E-L-L-M-E-D-I-A dot U-S. And we can set up a time to chat. Or if you just want to give me a ring, ping me on my cell. It's 317-855-8597. And if you're thinking, wait, is that normal to leave a phone number and a podcast? Maybe not. But hey, look, I have been in this industry for a long time. I know a lot of great people in it. So you can reach out to me at 317-855-8597. When we left off, Boonmi was taking us through her journey from Nigeria to law school to the FDA. As we continue, she dissects American and Nigerian identities and helps us understand how self-compassion can lead the way to a more fulfilling life. Thinking back to your childhood, you know, some children of recent immigrants to America resist their heritage, thinking they'll blend in better with the mainstream. Do your friends who immigrated to the U.S. talk about difficulties in preserving a sense of Nigerian heritage in their children and young relatives? Not that I've experienced because, man, to be Nigerian, to be Niger is just it you know like there's just so much it's it's in your system it's in your it's everything this is such a beautiful culture like to just hear for example like my mom praying Yoruba that can just bring you to tears you know it's just so there may be others out there but I know that when I talk to my friends or to like my husband and his friends, I, there's just a lot of pride. And in fact, you know, my daughter, one of her best friends, her dad is, I think, of Irish heritage and her mom is Nigerian Yoruba. And when they first met, that's how they connected. And she's 12. They met when she was like nine or 10. That's how they connected was over their a certain like Nigerian food, you know? And so... At that age and having never set foot in Nigeria, the culture just resonates so strongly. And so I I haven't experienced a lot of people who want to reject that side of them. However, there's the challenge of making sure that we are passing on that tradition and culture to our kids, which, you know, as a parent, there's so much going on, you know, and so you have to make a conscious effort to do that. I wish my my kids spoke Yoruba. They don't. They understand a little bit. But the challenge of that is because my husband and I are from different tribes. We don't speak the same Nigerian language. So it's not constantly in our home. You know, whereas one of my friends, both her and her husband are Yoruba. So they constantly speaking Yoruba to each other. So the kids understand and speak Yoruba, you know? So I wish the kids spoke one of our languages, but they don't. And so there's that 
fear that maybe it will get lost in generations to come. Yeah. But, you know, you just never know how that works out. So. Do you feel a conflict between holding a Nigerian identity and being an American at the same time? I don't. That's the thing. I don't because, yeah, no, I am very, very much American. And I think it's a few things, right? I spent how many years in this country now? I moved here when I was 16 and I'm 43. So what, 20, 27 years? Yeah. And so I've lived here, you know, much longer than I've lived in Nigeria. And I'm very much American and I'm very much Black American in the sense that I'm a hip hop head, you know, (laughs) like I love hip hop. I'm very much aware and appreciative of the culture and the history of this country. And in the same manner that we teach our children about Nigerian culture and tradition, we teach them about African-American history and culture. And so I'm very thankful to be surrounded by strong African-American women who are my friends, who I learn a lot from every day. And so there's no conflict. In fact, I think being Nigerian helps me appreciate being African-American even more in the sense that, you know, I have a strong appreciation for the history and for the struggles of African-Americans in this country. And I ache and hurt for my Black brothers and sisters who didn't have the experiences that I had growing up in the village, I ache for them that they were robbed of that experience that I was so privileged to have. And so I am very much Black American, just as much as I am Nigerian. Wow. Thank you. So you're married and have three children. When when did you meet your husband? Was that law school, before law school? That was before law school. We met, we were friends first. And so we met in college. I was at University of Maryland. He was at Howard University. And yeah, we were part of just like a group of friends. And so we were friends for a very long time. And then I think we met in 1998 and we started dating in like 2006, like 10 years later. What do you hope to pass on to your children from your upbringing? A strong sense of pride. I hope we do that already. And that's just in who they are. And that's one of the reasons I started Atlas Book Club to begin with. They have a strong sense of pride in who they are. They know, have a strong sense of identity, especially living in a world that's very quick to tell you who they think you are. We both, my husband might feel very strongly about that. And so, you know, my hope is to pass on a strong sense of self, a strong sense of culture. They're just, Nigeria has just so much beauty in its culture. And not only in its culture has been the Nigerian, but in the very individual specific cultures. Because my husband and I are from different cultures. So we're from different parts of Nigeria. And so not only a general sense of pride in culture, but specific 
sense of pride. I want them to be proud to be from Iguzo, which is the village where my father-in-law is from. I want them to be proud of being from Ijebu Ode, which is where my, my mom is from, from Undo, where my dad is from. That level of specificity is what I hope that they know and hold on to and that they can pass that on to their children. What kind of role does your faith play in your day-to-day life? Oh man, everything. Yeah. Yeah. My my grandparents were Muslim. My mom's Catholic. I'm Catholic. I identify Catholic, even though I don't go to a Catholic church now. And I think at a very early age, my parents, you know, we were very much the people who go to mass every Sunday. I was baptized, all of that. I think what happens is when you come to this country or you're on your own at that age. As I got older, I don't think I recognized it at 16, 17, but as I got older, I started to recognize that there was a higher power at play in my life. I would say I did have one experience that stands out and that's the experience where my faith shifted. So I was in law school, first year of law school, and actually first day of law school. And I had gotten in and I didn't have any money for a number of reasons. I didn't have school loans to pay for that first year. And so I used all my savings to move to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. (laughs) And Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where not a lot was happening, but that's where Widener University was, Widener University School of Law. And so come the first week of school, I went to buy my books. And Marvin, who I don't remember his last name, he was the bookstore manager. And he said, you know, I went to go pay for my books. And I think they came to like almost $500. And I just didn't have it. And I didn't have a credit card or anything. And he said, and my mom, she was also struggling. She had written me a check for $50. And she said, keep this for emergency for, you know, in case of emergency. So, okay. And so I get to go, go pay for my books. And I think I had like $200. And Marvin said, said, oh, it's what I said. Oh, I don't have it. So I'm just going to get these two books that I can afford and I'll come back for the rest later. And he said, well, you need your books because you're going to you're going to get so far behind. You need this book. And he said, OK, let's do this. He said, I'll give you my employee discount, which was like 30 percent off or something like that. And I still didn't have enough because I had just like two hundred dollars. And I said, oh, I have this check that my mom gave me. I'm going to take out this $50 check and add to it. And he said, but is this an emergency? I said, well, yeah, I need my books. And he said, well, no, save that for a true emergency. And he did something I would never forget. This was like, what, like 15 years ago, if not more. And he said, here's what we'll do. Just give me what you have. Okay, you have $200. That's fine. My books are almost 500 Give me what you have. Don't worry about the rest. And I said, oh my gosh, no, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I was like, no, I can't do that. I can't accept that. You know how that, I can accept that. I can't make you do that. And he said, 
God is speaking to me and he's telling me that and he's telling me that you're going to do great things in the future and I just want to be a part of your story And he took my, it wasn't even up to 200, like a hundred and something dollars. And he uh, let me walk out of there with all my books for first year. And I went in my car and I cried because nobody had ever shown me that kind of kindness. And it was just like, somebody believed in me without even knowing me and just, you know, and that was the first big shift in my spirituality. It was just so evident that there was a higher power in play. And the more I recognize and the more I offer gratitude, and not only that, recognize that all glory goes to God, everything, like none of this is my doing. And so the more I recognize that, the more it is evident in my life, but the lack of a better term. Yeah, that's really powerful. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to um, roll us into, it's gonna be a little bit of an energy shift here. I'm gonna roll us into what we call our high velocity round. Okay. It's a little bit ridiculous because I'm gonna ask you a series of yes, no questions. Okay. But the rule is you're not allowed to answer just yes or no. Okay. <laughs> All right. You ready? Yes. All right. Have you ever thought about auditioning for a baking show? Yes, I have. I love to bake. It just makes me happy. I think it's because when I bake, there is some certainty in what the outcome is. I know if I do one cup of flour, one cup of sugar, da, 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 I know at the end of it, I'm going to have a cake or whatever. And so part of it, I think, is just that certainty, especially for someone whose life has used to have a lot of uncertainty. Is your phone battery by chance above 10% right now? I have to remember this is a podcast. I'm going to come across like a cackling, crazy lady. <laughs> yeah, I have quite the reputation of, I don't know why. I don't know. Yeah. Just just not high on the priorities. and That's all right. It's just not. <laughs> until it is. <laughs> Does your dog have eyes? Does my dog have eyes? Oh, yeah, because I have a picture of you and your family with your dog. And I saw the dog and I saw hair and a snap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he does. His hair, his bangs grow so long. He has the most beautiful brown eyes, though. Mm. Yeah. Do you nap every day? Not every day, but definitely on the weekends. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you take too many naps in one day? Probably not. If you have the time, go for it. Like, I remember when the world was open. Oh, I used to look forward to it so much. And the kids had in-person piano class. I would, we would go there and they would be in their piano and I would be on the couch and I would just nap. It's mm. just an effective use of time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Can you be a science nerd without wearing glasses? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I do have my glasses here. I'm just not wearing. (laughs) I love it. Does cooking excite you the way science does? Ooh, that's a hard one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, science, they both do. And cooking definitely excites me. Um, Yeah. Especially cooking something new, you know, and something that I delight in. I remember the first time I made focaccia bread and my friend, one of my friends, she, because she wanted me to make it for her. um, She sent me this video of an Italian bakery. Um, when COVID just started happening and everything started, they started doing all these baking classes online and just the delight that I got out of making that the first time is just something that I still remember. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of food and hearing your enthusiasm and food, your friend LaShonda said, Oh my God. You light up when you see your food come out at a restaurant. She described you as <gasps> having a bright-eyed excitement of a two-year-old getting an ice cream cone. Yeah, I love food. I love good food. Mm. Yeah, and she might be talking about, like, we when we went out, we shared a churro waffle, which is probably Mm. the best dessert I've ever had in my life, right? It's like a Belgian waffle, and they cut it into strips, and they... Make it like I think they dip fry it and coat it in cinnamon sugar. Oh, it is see that Ooh, exactly. That sounds yeah. amazing. And then they serve it with like a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Mm. It is heaven, heaven. Yes. But so if my face lights up when I see that, that is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> you have called yourself a student of authenticity and vulnerability. What do those words mean to you? Those mean everything to me. I I think when I just became a mom was when I started connecting with those and I discovered Brene Brown and ah, my life changed. What happened was those ideas were already in me. I just didn't know what to call them. Um, I'm an Oprah Winfrey kid. I grew up on Oprah Winfrey, watching Oprah Winfrey. And just to give you a little story Back in Nigeria, I think I was like 12 or 13 years old when I started watching the Oprah Winfrey show. And she, uh, it would come on at 1 a.m. And, um, and it would come on at one from 1 to 2. And a moonlightning with Bruce Willis would come on from 2 to 3 p.m. <laughs> so we had this like small black and white TV, probably the size of a laptop. And I would make my younger brother hold, we had like a wire. Um, the hanger would be like wired to the TV, so it has an antenna. And the room where the TV was, the living room was right next to my parents' bedroom. So we would sneak up at like 1 a.m. And I would make my brother hold the antenna (laughs) and I would be sitting this close to the TV because the volume, you had to turn the volume very low so as not to wake up my parents. And I would watch the Oprah Winfrey show. And then my brother, I would have to bribe him with candy because, you know, I was making money off my little business. And so it's like, you have to buy me some eclairs. I'm like, just hold hold the antenna. (laughs) And so this was like 12, 13 years old when I moved to the U.S. because my mom, you know, 
was in Nigeria. And my and it's not like the way it is now in the sense that, you know, I could just pick up the phone and call someone in Nigeria. There was no internet. There was no cell phones. We didn't have a phone in my home growing up. So in order to get to a phone, my parents would have to walk like three or four streets down to a relative's house and use their phone. And you had to, okay, you let them know. Oh, they'll get a message delivered. Bumi's going to call from America on Saturday at 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, not having that ability to talk to my mom, who we were very close, and just not having that parental connection. Oprah Winfrey was the Oprah Winfrey show, was the one constant in my life. And so I would come home from school. I started, you know, school, work, whatever I was doing. And um, I would tape the Oprah Winfrey show on like a VHS. And I would watch the Oprah Winfrey show every day for years. And she, I, she was my other mom. I learned a lot about being a woman from her and just being a whole person in the sense, like all those things, authenticity, vulnerability, all of that. And like I said, I didn't know what to call them then. Um, but when I connected with Brene Brown, I can't even remember. I saw her TED talk and it was like light bulb. That's what that is called, you know? And so, yeah. And I think that just opened the door and I just, I love Brene Brown. I lead a lot, a lot of Pima children and, um, you know, just, uh, people who've studied that and who um, just communicate values that speak to that, that that's, yeah, that just is such a huge part of my life because it also informs how I live now. And I can get into like a specific examples later, but I just believe so strongly in being authentic because I feel like, or being vulnerable because I feel like it gives the, it gives permission to the people that you're engaging with. It gives them permission to be their most authentic self, you know, and what happens is that just births an energy that just allows magic to happen. And I've seen it replicate over and over and over again, you know, my my interactions and relationships. Yeah. You've said you're, quote, learning to practice kindness to myself, more self-compassion, and now more gentleness emotionally and physically, end quote. Um, is that... Oh, my God. Where did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say, let's just say Kirsten does a, an exceptional job on research. I see. <laughs> okay, say so read that again. That sounded really good. <laughs> <laughs> it came from a very wise woman I recently met. She said that she's learning to practice kindness to myself, more self-compassion, and now more gentleness emotionally and physically. Now, is that, you know, like a bunch of feel-good self-help talk, or are these real applicable practices? Very, very real. Very real. I've been in this country since I was 16 years old. I've basically been working since I was 16, and a lot of the earlier years was about survival. And I am what I call myself a recovering perfectionist. Um, I just am very critical 
of myself and my work and I push and grind, but now I grind and I nap. (laughs) So, you know, I've just learned, I would say in the past 13, I have my oldest, yeah, he's 13. So I would say in the past 10 years, I've just learned to be more gentler in my approach um, towards myself, just less critical, less hypercritical, you know, less um, striving for perfectionism, um, for perfection, and just learning to be more self-compassionate, you know, like, hey, that's okay, you know, it's okay, because I, I, I came to the realization that I'm a great friend, I think, you know, and so I extend so much grace and compassion to my friends and to others. And I'm just learning to do that towards myself. Mm. And so that's as far as, you know, emotional gentleness, but as far as physical gentleness, 10 years ago or so, you know, I injured my knees and I used to race, you know, like I used to run and I was actually training for a half marathon when I injured my knees. And so that in and of itself has been a journey coming to accept that I can't race anymore. You know, I mean, not because I can't run, but just because the mechanics of my body, I have really flat feet and, you know, the mechanics of my body, uh, I've been advised just, you know, if you want to Keep your knees and your feet until you're 80, 90 years old. Running and racing is just not for you. And so being someone who just loves that competitiveness, who loves to race, who loves to work out and go hard in the gym, learning to be gentler with my body is something that's been a journey in and of itself. And it's taking, I mean, the past two, three years, I've been much better, but it took me a couple of years for all that to settle in and really embrace gentle movement like yoga and just recognizing that the goal is movement. It doesn't have to be go hard all the time. When I do yoga is when I feel like I'm loving on my body the most because I just feel it's like my muscles are giving my bones this warm hug, (laughs) you know? And so just being kind to my body and and recognizing that in a world where has a black woman it can be a harsh harsh world if the world is doing that to me what am i doing to myself you know i deserve and i'm worthy of that gentleness and so A lot of things that I post on Facebook are epiphanies that come to me in the moment and that I post for my future self in the sense that I love going to Facebook memories every day uh, because sometimes there are words that I've left for myself like six, seven years ago. And it's usually almost always something I need today. So I post it first and foremost selfishly for my future self, but also because again, going to vulnerability, I recognize that I'm not the only one going through this. And so if I need it, I bet somebody else needs it too. Yeah. What experiences open your eyes to the aspects of yourself that you're working on? 
Well, I'll, I'll tell the story. So when my youngest was like two months old, I was in my master's program at Hopkins. So that would make my oldest was almost five, I think. Was that 2012? Yeah. So my oldest was about four and a half. My daughter was maybe two. And my youngest was like, yeah, a month or so. And I was in Hopkins, like I had the baby. And two weeks later, I had a paper due. <laughs> and I remember I was driving to my parents-in-law because I was so tired. And I was just, I just need to get over there so I can take a nap. <laughs> and um, so I was driving and my so the baby was crying. And I think the two kids were like bickering. And I just was freaking, I was driving and I was just like, Oh my God. And I had was probably like some kind of anxiety, you know, attack or panic attack. Like I was just like, Oh my gosh. Like, and who knows? I mean, looking back, maybe it was postpartum. I don't know. And, you know, I remember pulling over to the side of the street, calling my husband and he just like breathe, calm down. I was like maybe a mile away from my my in-law's house. And so I was calm, okay, you know, I'm good. The kids are good. So I drive over there and, you know, take a nap and everything. And I call my mom. She had a conversation with me and she told me the story of when she was in Lagos and she was running her business and picking up the kids and going there. And one of the stores where she would drop off her goods, there was an old lady at the gate, in front of the gate. And the old lady called her and said, ma'am, and she said this in Yoruba, but I'll translate as much as I can. And she said, ma'am, she's like, I see you every day going back and forth, just scuttling the kids, this and that. And she was like, let me tell you this. And she said, perfectionism is what killed the perfectionist. And so this is what this random old lady told her. And so my mom's giving me this talk. (laughs) She's like, perfectionism is what killed the perfectionist. And she just basically told me like, just, you need to chill. Like you're doing way too much here. And so that was where it just all started to click. And that's where I was like, okay, you know, I need to find a way to just simplify my life. You know, this is a lot going on. And I started, you know, learning to say no more. And so, and so that birthed this unapologetic self-care you know, where I was just like, okay, yeah, you do this, no, mm, you know, and I just embraced saying no, embraced taking care of myself and just dedicated to putting my own, what's it called, a mask, they say put your mask on first. When you start on that kind of journey, it kind of builds exponentially. It kind of builds on the self because what happens is, it feels great, you know? Yeah. You start to go yeah. like, ah, oh, I have more peace and I have more energy and, you know, I want to do more of this. And so, you know, that just started off this snowball of learning more about self-care and self-compassion and just building those practices in. You mentioned earlier that running used to be very important to you, but you had to stop for medical reasons. Is there any kind of physical exercise you can do as part of your self-care? Oh, yeah. I just got a Peloton bike. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I do a Peloton ride every pre-interview because it just kind of gets my body like reset, flushed out, and it does way more than coffee ever could. 
it is my favorite thing. And I resisted for a while. I was like, I am not paying damn near $3,000 for a bike. But because, you know, I used to race. So I have, and by race, I mean like 10Ks and I was training for a half marathon when I injured my knees. And this was about maybe six years ago. And so I think with the Peloton is the first time that I can uh, exercise and because I love to push and I can push and get that endorphin high pain free. It just feels very liberating to be able to just push that hard, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean, because I've never had an injury, but I've always had kind of knee issues when I like try to even sometimes I've had times where I do like a three to five mile walk. It's just kind of like an intentional walk and I'll have knee pain. And I'm like, oh, man, like I'm 31 years old, you know, like who wants to ride a bike inside? Like it sounds so t- and I had done a spin class maybe 10 years one time. and I was like, nope, not interested. But with the pandemic and then I had a friend just raving about it and I did it and I love it more every month. I love that pushing and like because I did a hit ride before this and that was like, whoo, like I was heart pounding and, and, it, and it, I love it. Oh, it feels so good that like that rich burn in the lungs afterwards mm-hmm. that like lingers and yeah. And there's some I mean, I don't know if this is part of the interview, but I, I can talk business all day. Right. And so when I think about the Peloton business model and in fact, when I started thinking about Atlas and I love how I built this. When I started researching and, and thinking about Atlas and what that would look like from a business perspective, um, I listened to a lot of how I built this. And Peloton uh, was one of my favorites because it helped me be confident in the price point that I placed on the Atlas box. Right. It really helped me do that because at the end of the day, I just felt that people will pay for what they value, you know. And so that made me because I was uncomfortable, if I'm being honest, I was uncomfortable with the price. I was like, ah, is it too much? Is it this? Is this that? And in fact, now I feel like I should be charging more. But I want <laughs> that's a totally different story. But yeah, it made me feel comfortable. I'm like people will pay for what they value, as long as you are bringing that value. And look at us just gushing about Peloton. I mean, what a business module where where their users are the ones helping them sell (laughs) these bikes, you know? So anyway. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting to think about. And when I hear you talking about price, that's something a lot of people, I think a lot of us entrepreneurs, and maybe not everybody, but I feel like a lot of us struggle with that like, Charging the number that's really going to let us do everything we want to do yeah, so that we can stay in business and do this ah. for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, because you know what you're bringing to the table, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, the amount of time and effort that I put into this, you just have to believe that your time is worth whatever it is that you're charging. It's not just a book and some facts and some souvenirs. You know, it is the intentionality that goes into it. Next week, we'll hear part two of this two-part series where Boonmi will share about Atlas Book Club and how it came to be. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or head over to our website to leave a comment at lawfulgoodpodcast.com forward slash review. Thanks so much for listening to us this week. This podcast is produced by Kirsten Stock, developed in collaboration with Max T. Russell, edited by Kendall Perkinson, and mastered by Guido Bertolini. A special thanks to the companies that make this project possible, X Social Media, Russell Media, and the SEO Police. You can learn more about these groups by visiting our website, lawfulgoodpodcast.com. I'm your host, Luke W. Russell, and you've been listening to Lawful Good. <laughs>